Welcome to the AUDL Roundup. Two weeks of action are in the books. We are here to break it down. Preston Thompson with Nathan Jessen. We're going to do some buy or sell. We're going to do some takes on some early season trends. And we've got an interview coming up in the middle of the show with San Jose Spiders head coach Tyler Grant. It's going to be really cool. Don't want to miss it, so stick around. But first, for right now, Nathan, how's your week going so far? Pretty good, Preston, uh, when it's not, you know, raining and I have to stand outside in the rain. That part's miserable. But uh, other than that, really great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's get right into it. We are going to start off with a new segment. We're going to talk about three early season trends, three that will last, three that won't. So we're talking about six total. Let's start with the ones that Nathan has thrown out that are going to last. So I'm going to start at the top here. San Jose Spiders will complete. 95% of their passes this season. That is a high bar. I need you to convince me. All right, so we'll we'll talk uh, about the Spiders' upset a little bit more later. But right now, looking at past years, last year they only completed 92% of their passes, and their two championship years they completed 93%. But the Spiders right now are completing 95% of their passes, and that's after two games against the best team in the West and one of the best teams in the league, the San Francisco Flamethrowers. Their top three uh, completion leaders right now are Justin Norton, Stephen Chain, and Chuck Cow. Those guys are all at 96 or 97%. The Spiders' offense is just very methodical. It's not necessarily looking to score in two or three throws right away. Um, they, they take the looks that are there. Sometimes that's a huck. Sometimes it's a break. And... Um, I just think the way that they run their offense, it's it's looked like this is a trend that can keep it up. They're they're pretty efficient. They've had a pretty solid two week start. I mean, we talked about earlier uh, in our season preview about how they were going to have to maybe get a win over San Francisco if they were looking into the playoffs, and they got it. Uh, it was a real tight game, but they managed to come away with it, and that's going to give them a distinct advantage over LA, Vancouver, some other teams in that division that are kind of on the bubble. Uh, their playoff chances might be looking a little bit up. Yeah, you know, the thing is, like, just because they have a higher passing percentage this year than 2014 or 2015, I'm not saying that their offense is necessarily better. It's just that their style of play is different. You know, they run a very handler-centric offense, and those handlers are very good at not trying to disc over. Um, they, they are certainly players that can complete hucks and do complete hucks, but they're much they're very comfortable going every other. They're very comfortable throwing little breaks and getting the disc right back. I mean, they're, that style of play is conducive to a high passing percentage. It was true to some extent last year, uh, but there were a few other players. Uh, you know, Kelly Van Arsdale's mostly been playing defense this year. Um, he was somebody who's a little more willing just to just like air it out, uh, similar to Kevin Smith. Um, another player that uh, a handler that was willing to take more creative shots, which are certainly good throws, but also not quite the, you know, 96, 97% completion rate. So I think you're really going to see an uptick in that completion rate. And I think it can stay at 95. I mean, it might dip to 94, but um, I think this is a trend that we can see continue throughout the season. That style is really conducive to holding on to a small lead, which is what they did. I mean, they only beat San Francisco by two, but, Late in the game, if, when they were able to kind of consistently reset a little bit, you know, that, that's tough to get breaks on rather than a team that likes to take more risks, put it deep a little more often. So moving on, another trend that will persist past the early season. Tyler Monroe will lead the Breeze in goals even though he plays on the same team as Jeff Wodach. Give me your thinking on this one. Yeah. Well, Tyler Monroe scored seven goals on Sunday. Jeff Vodach had three. Um, so that's a four-goal lead right there. Um, I, I just mentioned Jeff Vodach because he's a really great player um, who is a big Im- impact player and scored a lot of goals for the Breeze last year. And he's somebody that you know showed up time and time again. I mean, that's a big part of it. But Tyler Monroe, I think that he's going to be the – we might see Jeff Wodach cut under a little bit more this season, and Tyler Monroe's going to be a little bit more of the deep threat. Not because Jeff Wodach can't be the deep threat. Of course he can, but it's just teams are... When when you're game planning a little bit more for Jeff Wodach, it opens things up a little bit more. And someone like Tyler Monroe, who's just... I mean, the passes he was catching on Sunday in the end zone, 
there, there were some that were, you know, highlight worthy, but a lot of them were just because he got wide open. I mean, he's he's a young guy, but uh, I think he's going to have a big impact on this DC team. He also had four assists on Sunday. Um, he and Max Castle were looking really good together. I think he's the type of guy that can put up a lot of goals this year in the AUDL. The DC Breeze took it to Toronto this weekend. I mean, I was not a believer, and I I think I am now. It's going to be tough to put that out for an entire season, but man, that game really wasn't even that close. Uh, the DC had a couple holes they had to fill, uh, goose leaving and some other players getting out of that area to fill that kind of goal-scoring role. I was personally curious as to who that was going to be. I think Tyler Monroe could be that guy. I absolutely do, and, and I am totally buying this trend that you're throwing out there. And the last trend that will keep up past the early season, there will be a discussion of whether a play caught on video merits a suspension or ejection every single week on the Ultimate subreddit. Let's throw in just kind of general social media there, too. But the ultimate subreddit seems to be a, a particular hot spot for this kind of discussion. Yeah, you know, after week one, it was the Misha thing. And then I think once people saw that video, it was just like, it looked more just like, oh, that was a really unfortunate. The way that developed wasn't necessarily worthy, you know, of ejection and suspension. And then. Obviously, there, this past week, there's the Tim McAllister bid, which if you haven't seen, you can go uh, on our AUDL throw-around recap and watch that um, attempted kick block. Um, I just, listen, the AUDL has a lot of video content um, and a lot of full-game video content that gets posted on YouTube um, and shown live, uh, I mean, like four or five games every week. And when you do that, you, it's just... It's a lot of potential plays. I mean, even think about College Ultimate. We don't have nearly that much video for College Ultimate and or even Club Ultimate. I mean, it's just not something that exists. So that these AUDL plays often get blown up because, well, they're all there to dissect. Um, and that's going to, I think it's mostly just going to continue. You know, there's always going to be a questionable play um, every week. It's, it's just, it's inevitable. Um, it, it happens... Um, and it's just caught on video. Uh, wh what do you think, Price? And is this is this going to happen every week? So before I get into that, our friends at uh, Sin the Fields did a, a short little recap on the Misha Freystadter bid in their Nashville game that happened in week one. Um, you know, despite that show's like crazy antics and calling me nasty words pretty much every other episode, I thought they did a good job of kind of wrapping that up. And, and me, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. And yeah, you're uh, you're kind of <laughs> your first time on Sin the Fields. Congratulations, you can join the club. Um, but they did a pretty good job summing that up. I mean, Misha, before video came out, people were kind of raking him over the coals. And if you play for Nashville and that happens to your player, I totally get that. I mean, I have very often playing in games, a play like that happens and I come to that defense. But Watching the film, it's just one of those really unfortunate plays that just kind of happens sometimes. Misha doesn't really keep his head on a swivel and see the guy coming over on really a weird kind of cut that only happens in the AEDL. So I don't think it deserved as much outcry as it did. It really stinks to have a couple players just bash into each other like that, but that happens a lot in all sorts of sports. I mean, you see the same kind of play happen in basketball sometimes where a guy is watching his defender who's dribbling down court. Somebody sets a pick and he crushes into him without seeing anything from that defender. It happens all the time. So, but anyways, moving on to your larger question. Um, I want to ask you something real quick. Is all of the film from AUDL games very public and very accessible to everybody all the time? Oh, no, not all the film. Um, certainly not all the film. But, I mean, like, w each game of the week, right, um, the Ulti World games then, too, and then, you know, the Alley Cats games are all their home games. And then all the, I mean, the Dallas home games have been broadcast. And then all the, I mean, Empire games, home games. And then there's the growlers home games and the the flamethrowers home games it's just it's enough teams that broadcast on their own that it adds up in addition to the games of the week um, so and they're, they're just a lot of teams but it raises kind of an interesting question of 
if this isn't caught on film, I mean, there's obviously a, less of a chance of the league taking retroactive action against it. I mean, referees can and do give out suspensions or maybe not suspensions, but ejections on the spot. And then maybe the league will come back if it's on film and evaluate. But does it seem fair that there are some games where you can, as a player, say, well, this isn't being filmed, so I'm going to be a little more aggressive, knowing I can be a little looser with the rules? Well, well, hold up, Preston. The AUDL does film every game, right? They, they do film yeah, every single game. Of course, but and there's they- not going to be the public outcry that happens when a play like this happens in a more prevalent game that's being streamed and being watched by a reporter or somebody else. That That's true. But I also think players make a really big difference. You know, I mean, there was public outcry over the Misha play when there was no film of it. Uh, there was public outcry of, and on Jeff Powell last year in the playoffs against DC. I mean, that one was really justifiable, um, you know, and that, I think film came out after, you know, people started posting about it. So I I think that there are fans at these games. There are players at these games. Fans and players are not bashful about sharing what they think on social media. Uh, So I think that generally if there's something that people think is really bad or a really bad bid, that it's going to come out. I mean, these games are intended to be as public as possible. So I think that it's just... It'll come out. So I don't think that there's an incentive to do dumber things just because the game isn't being live-streamed. You know what? I, th- I think you're right. I-, I was trying to see if maybe there's an argument for fairness here where, well, my game was more public, so why am I under further scrutiny? But, like you said, they stockpile film. I mean, to my knowledge, no reporters for Ulti World were watching the Jacksonville-Nashville game live, um, and we saw kind of the the takes on that on that play on that bid after the fact and then film kind of came out about that so it's not like some of this stuff is just strictly unavailable so i do agree with you though that this trend is going to keep up i mean we're going to keep having this conversation uh refs are going to be putting some pressure to make some ejection calls or some personal foul calls on the spot and it's going to be something we're going to have to keep talking about on the show probably Now we're moving on to the three trends that will not persist past the first couple weeks of the season. First one given to us kind of unknowingly by Evan Lepler in his Tuesday toss. Jeff Babbitt is on pace for a 40-goal, 40-block season. Uh, To my understanding, don't think that's ever been done before. Nathan, fill us in here about why this will not happen. Yeah, it never has happened before. There have been four players uh, since the league uh, went to a 14-game season in 2014 that have had 30 goals and 30 blocks in the same season. The closest uh, was uh, to a 40-40 season was Bo Kittredge in 2014 when he had 36 goals and 31 blocks. And so that is Bo Kittredge, 2014, still well short um, of this plateau. You know, if there was somebody that could do it this year, I definitely think it would be Jeff Babbitt. But I, I think this is too high a bar to climb. You know, the, the players that have come close in some way or another have often been either just otherworldly, like Bo Kittredge in 2014, or someone like Andrew Meshnick, who had a 30-30 season in 2015, and playing in a defense that basically was set up to get him blocks, playing in that Madison zone. You know, Peter Graffi had 49 blocks one year. But he was, again, the deep, deep in that Madison zone where he was just, people were frustrated by that Meshnick-Weber double team, and they were just sending something deep, hoping that he wouldn't be there to clean it up, and of course he usually was. So I, I just don't view this as really a, an achievable goal uh, in the AUDL in 2017. What do you think, Preston? So I'm going to take kind of a different approach, almost the opposite, but New York is a good team. I mean, they're deep. They've got a lot of people who can play really tight defense, got a lot of people that can score goals. They're not going to need him every week to be scoring like crazy. They're just not going to. And I know you. some of the players you mentioned are on similar teams like this, but to have a player get to 40 goals and 40 blocks, he's got to be clearly far and away the best player on the team, for starters, and he's got to be one of the only players on the team that is capable of doing that. 
So you're talking about like last year, if Misha Freistadter had also played just outrageous defense because his team needed him to to win games. When New York plays Montreal, when they play Philadelphia, they're not going to need Jeff Babbitt to have just a crazy game. And you don't need a crazy game every week to get to that mark, but you need a lot of them. You can't just be you can't just be pushing it in those top level games and get to that mark at the end of the year. Yeah, New York also has Mike and Ryan Dross. Ryan Dross is another player that has had a 30-30 season actually last year. But there there are enough good defenders that are going to get blocks on this team. It's not like one player is going to soak them all up. And the other thing is, um, you know, Jeff Babbitt, he's a dominating enough force that people are just going to, if he keeps it up, are just going to stop throwing near him a lot of the time. You know, (laughs) that is absolutely going to happen, though it may not happen as much if the East weren't as strong as it is. Another thing that I think is uh, hurting him is the fact that the East, I think, overall is going to be a pretty strong division this year, more so top to bottom, more so than in some years past. So it's not like you're going to see him get uh, seven or eight blocks in a game against a bottom feeder team the way you might have in past years. I just the quality of the the division is going to make it tougher for someone to accumulate so many blocks. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree. I, I mean, if he does it, you're looking at, I mean, you're looking at not only MVP, you're looking at probably the greatest, one of the greatest seasons in league history. And I hope we get to talk about that because it would be really fun. But I, if, man, that's a pretty high bar. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he joins that 30-30 club. An elusive mark, but if he joins it, you know, I, I would not be surprised. So moving on, another trend that will not persist past the first couple weeks of the regular season, Cassidy Rasmussen leading the flamethrowers in goals and assists. I might disagree with you here, but I am I am willing to hear uh, arguments on the floor. So you have the floor, Nathan. Listen, Cassidy's had a great uh, couple of games to start the season. He has 13 assists. Nine goals, leading the flamethrowers on both counts. Uh, the next most assists on the team is seven, uh, Mac Taylor. The next most assists, few people have six. I, I think he will end up leading the team in assists. I don't think he'll end up leading the team in goals. Um, Grant Lindsley and Joel Schlockett both missed uh, their game last weekend against the Spiders. Those are two guys that can put up a lot of goals. They each had six in the season opener. Bo Kittredge is someone we also know can score a lot of goals. Um, I, I think that Cassidy is at his best when he's distributing. He obviously can be a great goal scorer, but I think that's going to be the role he ends up playing the most. Um, and I just think that the, the San Francisco team is too deep um, for him to end up leading in both goals and assists. You know what? That is a really tough mark to get to. Like you mentioned, Grant Lindsley will find the end zone. I, I see him as, as a very strong possibility to lead that team in goals, and I totally agree with you. Cassidy does seem more at home when he's able to distribute. He does find the end zone on you know sets that are very close to the goal line. He'll do some give and goes and some break throws and get around that way, but as far as kind of a big receiver downfield, that's not really where they want them. And like you said, they're a deep enough team to where they don't have to do that. So, again, it's kind of like the Jeff Babbitt situation. They're not going to be forced into a scenario where they're going to say, Cassidy, we need you to you know, either throw or score every point for the next two quarters. That's just not going to happen. It will happen with some other teams that are lower in the league with their playmaking guy, but... There's so many weapons on that San Francisco team that I don't see it sticking up, but a really strong start from him. Though, seriously, 13 assists, 9 goals, over 100 touches, only 4 turns right now. Cassidy Rasmussen, even if the flamethrowers dropped one game, he's had a great season so far, and honestly, he's, he's looked so good, I just expect it to keep up, even if he doesn't end up leading the team in goals. That's crazy. That's just... That's just some incredible numbers right there. I mean, MVP through two weeks, if that's a thing at all, <laughs> which it should not be. So let's not, let's not go be. there. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to go there. Okay, last trend that will not keep up past the early regular season, Vancouver averaging under 20 goals per game. You know, I noticed this going through the score sheet that they had been doing this. That's crazy. I, I mean, I can't think of a time 
since maybe early season AUDL where a team has gone two or three weeks averaging that level of goals and managed to win, you know, a couple games. Right. Definitely not, like, winning multiple games. Could have happened in, like, 2013 maybe. Um, Or, you know, a team that played some bad weather games in a row. But basically, the Vancouver Riptide do have a really good offense. The one thing that they've hung their hat on the last three seasons is a really good offense. You're talking about a team last year that put up 34 goals on the Seattle Cascades in, in one week. I mean, you know, they they put up 29 on the San Francisco Flamethrowers. This just, they maybe took a light roster to Seattle or, you know, I, the conditions were a little weird in L.A. Both have been road games. This is just absolutely not going to keep up, no question about it. Um, whether or not the two game, uh, the two losses puts them in a hole that's tough to come out of in the Western Conference is another issue. But I, I definitely see their offense turning around soon and in a big way. Nobody so far this season has won a game with less than 20 goals. And, and I know that may not be super surprising, but that seems like a really hard feat to get to. So. If they do keep that average under, it's because they're not playing well at all. And, and like you said, I don't think they're particularly going to be defense-heavy and then hold the disc forever on offense. I think they do have a dynamic offense, and they'll find the end zone a lot. So definitely don't see that keeping up. Okay, for now we're going to move on to our interview with Tyler Grant, head coach of the San Jose Spiders. A lot of cool stuff happening in San Jose, so stick around for that, and we will be right back. coach of the San Jose Spiders, who are coming off of a big win against the San Francisco Flamethrowers. How are you doing, Tyler? Uh, pretty good. How about you? Pretty good. Um, so before we talk about the big win on Saturday, um, can you just tell us a little bit about your uh, ultimate background, including uh, your playing days and coaching experience so far? Sure. Um, I've been playing for a long time now. Um, I'd say I've got about 15 years of experience under my belt. Um, I started out playing uh, at Princeton and then played some co-ed out, uh, out in the Bay Area uh, and then found a championship with Mischief in 2006. Um, and then after that, I switched over to Revolver um, and played for uh, three years under uh, uh, Dutchie and with Yo and uh, Mike Payne and, and some of those guys, along with, you know, the, some of the stars of the Flamethrowers, too. So um, I've had a good, uh, good range of experience with those guys. Um, when I stopped playing Revolver, I went over to Blackbird because I knew I wouldn't be able to put the same kind of uh, commitment into, uh, into training, but we ended up with a very talented team and uh, ended up going back-to-back in 2011 and 12 uh, for championships. So um, that was a a pretty good run. Um, I uh, ended up uh, going back to Mischief just for um, old-time friend's sake and uh, and then got a little bit injured in 2010, which has since been... uh, causing problems for me. Uh, it turns out that I sprained my uh, PCL pretty significantly and that knee has been uh, problematic and has ended up uh, giving me the, the coaching gig rather than a playing gig. So um, I did coach Cal in a, in a partial role in around 2013 um, and then helped out with the Spiders in 2015 um, along with like doing some things for mischief at that time. So I've dabbled in coaching and this is the first year that I felt like I could really give it the full commitment there. What made you want to you know? take that leap and become a 
full-time head coach, particularly for the Spiders this year? Well, I've been uh, I've been wondering how to stay in touch with the game when I uh, when I couldn't play. I've got uh, a longer term injury right now, and it seemed like uh, it seemed like a fairly good transition. Um, I asked Zoe if I could help out in any way, and it turned out he was in need of a, a head coach. And since I had done a little bit for them in the uh, 20th season. Um, <clears throat> sorry, 2016 season. Um, it, uh, it seemed to uh, fall into place. Okay, so you opened the season um, in a pretty good game against San Francisco. Uh, your team played well, lose by a five, but allow 34 points uh, to San Francisco, only get a couple breaks, on Saturday, y'all win by two, only allowing 22 points, and this time with a bunch more breaks. I think it was eight. Um, so how did your defense adjust after that week one loss? What did you see that you thought, this is what we need to do differently, and uh, how did you make that work? Well, realistically, they have uh, a bunch of good athletes, and the defenses that I had prepared – uh, for the first game, didn't do much against their pole plays, and they ended up scoring a number of uh, quick points that tended to uh, then put our offense back on the field and wear us out. So uh, there were a few personnel changes, but uh, overall, I think we we adjusted a little bit on the mark. We adjusted to uh, playing a little bit different defense uh, so that they were unable to do exactly what they wanted in the, uh, in the pole plays. So that helped quite a bit. And, you know, there was a, there was a little bit of a, a cold weather factor. You know how when the disc gets a little slippery, I think that might've played a factor, but realistically the conditions were fairly calm in both games and um, really ideal for, for offense and, and ultimate. Um, so I think the combination of the first two things that I mentioned made, uh, made enough of a difference to, to slow them down and give us enough opportunities to score. Yeah. I think it was really apparent in that first game, they were scoring in four or five throws. A lot of the time you didn't really see that happen on Saturday. Um, one of the big moments in the game on Saturday um, was near the end of the, or at the end of the third quarter, I think it was a tie game. San Francisco has the disc, but then they drop it in their own end zone. Kelly Van Arsdale uh, rips a huck. It gets tipped by, I think, Bo. Sam Adamson uh, bids for it, manages to get the grab, flips it to Brandon Fien for the goal as time expires to take the lead. Uh, It was pretty unreal watching even just the replay. What was the the huddle like uh, in between quarters? How amped was your sideline? Oh, that was pretty incredible. Everyone was pumped after seeing that happen. Um, yeah, I was very impressed with the guy's uh, tenacity because uh, when you look at the replay, you can uh, you can see Brandon uh, with his arm raised at the bottom of the picture, and he's streaking down, getting in position for the huck. Like it, all the guys were aware of the the clock; they were they knew what was going on, and you know it. Bo got his hand on the disc, but uh, not enough to prevent the the catch. So um, that doesn't turn into a score if it's only Sam going down. Um, there has to be at least a, uh, one more player <laughs> in order to get that score. Um, so I'm really impressed with the guys for not giving up and making that play actually happen. I think um, a lot of people might be familiar with some of the handlers on your team. I think one person that stands out, like Justin Norton's been unreal these first couple of weeks. But um, one player that I'm not sure if people are as familiar with that's played a big role for you so far is uh, Jackson Stearns. Um, I think he had seven mm-hmm. goals on Saturday. Can you just describe his impact to the team, whether it's on or off the field? Oh, he's a very vocal leader and you know he's a big guy so 
um, his energy really drives the team forward. Um, I've seen him fire up the team. I've seen him get fired up when when things are going right or wrong. His uh, emotional presence is is really great, and um, I think he's been able to uh, focus this year and make sure that he plays with enough energy on a point over point basis because the surrounding team is uh, is really carrying uh, everyone uh, to a higher level. So when he's out there at a hundred percent, he's very difficult to stop. He's got a big frame, knows how to catch it, knows how to actually move the disc. And um, I, I'd say this is, this is a, a culmination of all of the team um, putting him in a position to, to take care of, uh, take care of business when it comes to scoring goals. So last year, uh, you said you helped out a little bit. Um, in 2016, the Spiders got a big early season win over the eventual AUDL finalists, the Seattle Cascades, before kind of slipping a bit and finishing 5-9. and nine. What can you do this year to kind of carry this momentum forward? Well, it's focusing on execution, focusing on us and our fundamentals. Um, so far, I've been quite happy with how Alex has been able to move the disc and and put things into the end zone, like scoring what, 29 points in that first game against a, a very experienced and, and savvy defense, um, and then scoring 24 in this game in a, in a little bit more of a, a defensive battle. I think we still are able to get the disc into the end zone, and that's been that's been very helpful. So on the defensive side, we can we can look at our marks. We can see how we can play against particular teams, and I think focusing on up is going to be uh, going to be very effective in keeping our edge uh, throughout the rest of the season. In what ways do you view, uh, for coaching purposes, uh, how does coaching the AUDL change um, your approach compared to what would be coaching USAU? With uh, you know, obviously AUDL has you know, timed games and uh, 53-yard wide field probably being a couple of the biggest factors. What, uh, how does that change your approach or strategy? Well, the biggest difference is the width of the field. I think it can't be overstated that the defenders have a much, much harder time on a big field as opposed to a club-sized field where you only have 40 yards to work with. Those extra 13 yards make such a difference for uh, being able to isolate and and put people into space that it's just much, much harder to help in any way as a defender. So you can take away, uh, you can take um, that offensively to help the disc move. And as a defense, you have to be even more precise. And, you know, like that's, that's really difficult. Um, I think in a club situation, you have the, the team aspect of like getting your chemistry going as a, as a first and foremost priority, which I think doesn't change too much in uh, in coaching ADL, but I think when you have to go to a larger, some of the the strategies change so that you can take advantage of um, how hard it is to play defense. Okay, great. Thanks for taking the time uh, to talk today, and good luck the rest of the season. All right, thank you very much.
introducing a new segment this week, Buy or Sell. Um, we're going to talk about some potentially interesting topics uh, and say whether or not we think they're going to come to fruition or not. Some hot takes, some very cold takes, too, uh, undoubtedly. Um, <laughs> the first one is the San Jose Spiders will make the playoffs. Now, Preston, I know a lot of people are skeptical of the Spiders. Um, they obviously had a big win on Saturday. And I watched the game, and I have to say, there are a lot of times when you can uh, you watch a game and you can tell, oh, wow, this is a, a potentially huge upset. Even if you don't know going into the game which team is better in Ultimate, there are a lot of telltale signs. You know, one team has a lot of crazy sequences break their way. One team keeps talking to this one dude and it works. And that's just, in College Ultimate, when I watched a lot of up, if I watched an upset, it was probably because... One team was hucking it a lot, and it just managed to work for long enough for them. Another sign might be, you know, well, if the game had lasted just another five minutes, it would have gone the other way. Um, and none of that was really true with the Spiders this on Saturday. They really looked like a, a pretty good team. Um, they were not relying on huts. They were, I think if the game had lasted another five minutes, the Spiders still would have won. Um and I, they, they were, they did not look out of place next to San Francisco. Um, given all that, I'm still gonna sell. What do you think? So you're still saying they won't make the playoffs after that crazy long rant about how talented they were against San Francisco? Listen, I think the Spiders definitely can make the playoffs. It wouldn't shock me if they did, but I would still put the odds under fifty percent. Uh, we're still talking about a West division where teams two through six are all competing for those two playoff spots. I still think San Francisco is going to take the one seed. Um, and the only team that's won a game on the road so far is Los Angeles. Um, so that gives them a little bit of a leg up. It was only, you know, last year that we, I think it was April 14th, 2016, that our podcast came out and we were talking about the Spiders' huge win over the Seattle Cascades, and would it help launch the Spiders towards the playoffs, you know? The, the West is deep. Uh, the Flamethrowers are going to lose regular season games. They lost one to the Spiders. Um, but I just think that it's deep enough and that they haven't proven themselves on the road yet, despite the fact that the Spiders look like, look like a playoff team. Um, I don't see their odds at over 50%, just because of the depth of the West. I'm buying. I'm buying on them making the playoffs. And one of the reasons why is that they snagged an early win over the division favorite, which kind of plays like a birdie in golf, where they're one stroke up on everybody else. And they kind of know they can go into one of these toss-up games, maybe against Seattle, L.A., Vancouver, whatever, and they can drop one and still be in a pretty good position. I mean, like you said, San Francisco's got the division wrapped up. There's two spots up for grabs, and the way they looked against San Francisco, if they can keep that up against Vancouver, who hasn't looked that great, LA and San Diego, we've kind of only seen against each other, not really sure what's going on there. Seattle has looked better than I expected, so that might be a, a, a tougher test for them, but they've kind of got a stroke up on the field at this point, and... I mean, you said it yourself, even though you went the opposite direction, they look like a playoff team. They look like a team that can take it to anybody. Um, part of the reason I'm saying this is, is their style, as we talked about in our first segment, of just kind of holding onto the disc. They take a long time to score. They're not in a huge rush. They're just going to reset it. It's really conducive to getting an early lead and holding on to it. And some other teams in the West don't play that style. They're going to try and claw their way back and it's not going to work just because San Jose will reset the disc on you all day. They're very, very, very technically sound, which I think can put them over some of those teams like L.A., San Diego, other teams that are vying for those two spots. So I'm in big-time buy for San Jose making the playoffs. Well, the thing is, first of all, I think that everyone is always uh, – a lot of people succumb to recency bias, and I think that could be what's going on here. Uh, I, I'm not – I think that San Jose looks like a playoff team, but at the same time, they've got a couple more games against the Flamethrowers. Their schedule's just as tough as anyone, not like tougher at this point. But I think that we can't read too much into one win. Yes, they look good. It was a home game. And the other thing is, the Flamethrowers last year 
were not a team that played particularly well on the road, particularly given the way they're capable of playing. And I expect that to remain true this year. Last year, on opening weekend, this, the Flamethrowers opened their season in San Diego against a Growlers team that went 2-12. and 12. They won by two points in overtime. You know, they won in overtime in L.A. They lost by two points to Vancouver. They won one point by one point against San Jose last year. You know, they, they lost on the road to Seattle. Um, this is not a team that is invulnerable. Um, I expect the Flamethrowers will lose more games this year. There will be other teams that beat San Francisco at one point. San Jose is not going to be the only one to do it. Um, so can they make the playoffs? Absolutely. Are they in the mix? For sure. Um, will they? I, I just I don't see them as one of the top two most likely teams to. Um, I guess I won't put anybody's odds over 50%, come to think of it. But I just... I have a hard time thinking, yeah, you know, San Jose, they're going to the playoffs. Could be wrong. Absolutely could be wrong. It'd be great to see them make a run. Um, I just, I, t- I have a tough time seeing them getting to eight wins. You know, I think the first good showing we're going to have for them that really puts all of this in perspective is their first matchup with Seattle. Seattle right now is who I have kind of vying for that number two spot even with all of their roster shakeup, I think that game will really tell us a lot. So I'm looking forward to it. But you're just kind of a pessimist here. I'm always by. How can you say that none of the teams have over a 50% chance with the exception of, like, San Francisco? That's just just playing the odds that's just factually wrong. No, you're factually wrong, Preston. If you think they all have a chance, the odds of one of them having greater than 50% chance is going to be lower. Oh, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, did you I, take statistics? I'm just saying, we, one? we talked all during our season preview about how San Francisco was such a talented team and how they were a lock for not only the Final Four, but maybe even beyond that. And then the first team that beats them out of the gate, looking really good doing it, as you said yourself, I, I think their chances are moving up right now. Their stock's moving up. Yeah, their stock's definitely moving up. No, no dispute there. The next segment, uh, the next uh, buy or sell is the DC Breeze, and here's the DC Breeze have just as good a chance, if not better, as making the final four as Toronto and New York. Are you buying or selling, Preston? I'm going to sell here, um, and again, I'm going to refer to what we talked about in our season preview: Toronto and New York still have the same roster that they had when we talked a week ago. One win does not change that a whole bunch. And betting against Toronto is just, no, you don't do it. You don't bet against Toronto coming out of the East. I mean, I'm sure you've got the stats to back me up. I'm going to make you talk about them because one, their win against Toronto was very impressive. Uh, they had a lot of standout performances. But Toronto was on their probably their toughest road trip of the entire season. I don't think they're going to do that trip again on the road for their sakes. I certainly hope not playing against the best two teams in the East back to back with really no time in the rest. Cause they had a night game on Saturday and an afternoon game on Sunday. They were kind of destined to come out slow against DC there and DC, you know, executed. So no, uh, I, I'm I'm pretty hard sell on that. I'm still just overwhelmed by the impressive rosters of the top two teams in that division. Well, listen, I'm going to buy. I, I view them as having just at least as just as good a chance as Toronto and New York. Um, and I know that I just said people succumb to recency bias, but the difference between the way DC beat you know Toronto and San Jose beat San Francisco is there was no doubt about this game you know 32 21 that's the worst loss in toronto rush history uh regular season and playoffs you know um i mean they might be a little a little shook by that listen there is a quote in the the tuesday toss from jonathan martin who said something like you know we're the we're the champions of the east we're the number one team in the east until you know we uh, somebody else wins against us in the Eastern Conference, uh, Eastern Division Championship. Um, I hope I'm paraphrasing that correctly. Um, and I just think that's that's really arrogant um, to to just first of all assume that Toronto's going to make 
the the Eastern Conference Championship because there are three really good teams in the East. And uh, Toronto did beat New York on Saturday, but D.C. looked really good. And we talked about Tyler Monroe, and he's a player that looked really good, um, but we didn't maybe expect to have this big an impact this soon. Another one is Max Castle. Max Castle will have four goals and four assists, who uh, didn't have a big year in 2016, but he's looking like a contributor. I just I have a hard time seeing how that 11 point win can just be shaken off like it was nothing, like everything's the same as it was two weeks ago. I I think that the Breeze uh, last year they had a lot of star power for sure, um, and a lot of that's gone now, but. The end result is these players know how to play with each other. They're going to know right away how, how to win. And they're starting from just a much better point than they were last year when they were trying to learn how to play together. They don't have to do that this year. We are not talking about regular season, though. I totally agree with you that Toronto will drop a couple games during the regular season. It's going to be tighter than it probably ever has been. But we're talking about playoffs here. How many times has Toronto lost to one of these two teams in the playoffs? I just I don't feel comfortable fighting history that much. Listen, Toronto um, is bringing in some young players. Maybe they'll get better and develop as the season goes along. And, and you know, like Connor Armstrong looked good, and Breton Tan seems like a really exciting player. Um, but I still think that the the young players in DC uh, are more ready, um, and I think that they've. A lot of them showed a little bit last year, and they're they're stepping it. Uh, they stepped it up certainly on Sunday. The, the history is there, but I also the rush almost lost to the Breeze last year. Um, I just think that their their time atop the East may may come to an end this year. Again, I'm not saying count them out. You know, we're saying I'm just saying DC Breeze equal chance to Toronto right now. I think they have an equal chance and. I just, after watching that game, it's it's tough to think that maybe they wouldn't. I mean, right? <laughs> it, it was a really big win for them. Huge. I mean, like you said, definitely one of their best games. Well, absolutely their best game against Toronto ever. So, but I'm still not putting them at the same chances of those other two, and especially Toronto. I, I, I definitely buy right now DC having the same chance to get out and beat Toronto as New York, but I still think Toronto is pretty heavily favored in both of those matchups to win the East at the end of the year. All right, well, we'll just have to disagree on that one. This next one is uh, the the Tim McAllister bid uh, that ended up breaking Matt Jackson's arm. So if you go on, uh, you can find video of this play on the AUDL Throwaround or on YouTube. Um, Tim McAllister kind of attempted a, a kick block, a foot block. He um, jumped up a bit uh, on a huck that Matt Jackson was attempting. Got a lot of the arm. Matt Jackson is, I mean, out at least for the regular season. Preston, this uh, buy or sell this meriting a one-game suspension? So I've gone back and forth on this. This is not um, as clear of a decision as it was in the first uh, the first two. I think for now I'm going to sell on the one-game suspension. I don't think he should be suspended. I've watched this play a bunch, which for me, if you've known me at all in my life, you will know that I do not like watching injuries. I've been injured a ton myself, and I just I get queasy, and I hate watching stuff like this. But I've watched this a bunch. It's a really tricky play. An ultimate to run up to someone who's winding up for a huck. You're a paid, like paid semi-professional athlete. We try and talk about these guys like they're professionals, and to say, you know, don't go for it. I absolutely feel for Matt Jackson getting hurt. It really stinks. But running up, seeing him winding up for the huck, you're told by coaches get in front of it, do something to stop the huck. I would like to think you're not told by any good coaches to go hit the guy. And I don't think Tim McAllister was being malicious here when he wanted... I don't think anything went through his head where he said, I got to go hit him to make sure he doesn't get that hook off. I think what went through his head was, I got to get in front of him so that he's got to throw it over that out-of-bounds space and get it to curve back into the field, which is a much tougher shot in that crazy win they were playing with. He does not have a history 
of this kind of play where he's hurting people, hitting people, stuff like that. I think if he had been warned earlier in the season, earlier in this game, if he had a habit of making these kind of plays, I think this definitely warrants a suspension as a way to curve that behavior. But I think this is a really unfortunate one-off in a similar way to that Misha Freistadter situation. You know, with the reputation that the Cannons have, I don't think Misha, as a player by himself, has that reputation of hitting guys like that. So I think a one-game suspension seems really strict for a play that happens just because two guys put themselves in the moment. It's hard to tell a quote-unquote professional athlete to lay off of trying to get in the way, stop that play from happening. Listen, I agree with with a lot of what you said, um, but I'm going to go ahead and buy this as meriting a one-game suspension. Um, you talked about the conditions. It was a really sloppy game um, just because of the wind. Uh, but I think that Matt Jackson was clearly just winding up for a huck, like you said. And he, he put himself in a situation which he knew, I, I mean, he must have known was dangerous. I don't think it was a malicious bit at all. Of course not. Um, but he he had time to assess that play. He did something knowingly that was clearly uh, dangerous. I To me, it's just about that simple. It resulted in a really bad injury. And, and the other thing I just wanted to say is, if somebody gets suspended for a game, that's okay. Like I, I mean, from the team and player perspective, and there's no reason to shun anyone that gets suspended for a game. And, you know, mistakes happen. It's okay to for someone to make a mistake and, you know, get suspended for a game, and then they come back after that and keep playing. You know, this, this happens all the time. And professional sports, people get suspended, you know, for mistakes, and then they come back and play again. They, you know, we don't need the, the pitchfork mob coming after Tim McAllister after he returns from a suspension. But I, I just do think that looking at this bid, watching it, that it merits a one-game suspension, given that he knew that something like this was certainly possible. I mean, like, jumping for the foot block like that, I, I'm generally just not wild about those uh, in any scenario. Um, I understand that you can make the argument that, well, Nathan, you're being subjective because an injury happened here. And if an injury hadn't happened, I mean, are we even talking about this? And that, that's a really good point. Um, but I do think an injury did happen. So let's uh, live in the world we're living in rather than a hypothetical world. And that that's the, the reality we need to deal with. And a, listen, a one-game suspension is, is fine. It's not that – I mean, it's awful that Matt got hurt like that. And he's a super exciting player to watch. He works super hard, and he's a big part of that Roughnecks team. And it, it sucks that he won't be around for the regular season. But I still think it, you know, somebody can be suspended, and it doesn't need to be the end of the world, or it doesn't reflect, make them a bad person. You know what I'm saying, Preston? I do. So two things. One, I do think the the kind of flying foot block that he went for there should be classified as a dangerous play. Um, personally, when I've tried to make that play before, um, and and just speaking from personal experience, I usually don't get that close to the thrower. If I'm trying to just get in the way and force him to change the way he's hucking the disc, I usually can take a different route and at least get in front a little way. And I would like to think that in the future, Tim's going to do that instead. Um, and the second thing I want to say is I'm definitely not opposed to the league being too strict as opposed to too lenient. If they come down with a one-game suspension here, I'm not going to I'm not going to burn down the barn on them. I but I I'm concerned with consistency. I want to see some consistency where if this play happens again, he gets the same suspension regardless of if the player was injured, if there was some serious contact on that arm because of some flying foot block. I want to see that same level of discipline again. And I also think we could just stand to do with a little more of disciplining dangerous plays. I don't want to be too lenient. I would much rather be too strict if I had to pick one. Um, as a one-off, though, I'm just not I'm not sure. I'm not totally sold on a one-game suspension. Like I said earlier, really stinks for Matt Jackson. Totally agree with everything you said about how great of a player he is. And you don't want that to happen. But... 
you know, we're not really technically a contact sport, but these plays happen all the time. Yeah, you, you know, uh, I, I don't think plays like this happen all the time. I, I do just think that he had time to assess it. Obviously, the conditions in that game were super windy. He knew what Matt was going to do. He put himself in a way in which an outcome like this was not, you know, uh, unfathomable, certainly by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, you know, one-game suspension is, for me, it's appropriate. But yeah, that's you know, buy or sell. <laughs> Well, you know, I what a high note to end on. I know. I, I went back and forth on that, but I think a one game suspension for him, I think, sends a good message to the team of not to the team, but to the league of pay attention to what you're doing out there. Similar with that Misha play of, you know, keep your head up, keep your head on a swivel, do your best as a professional to assess the play and, you know, hold the safety of other players as a priority. So I'm totally fine with a one game suspension there. So we are going to move on. We're going to preview our game of the week for the upcoming week. So stick around. We will be right back. game of the week for this weekend doesn't actually count towards any ADL results. We are going to look at the Cascades Cup. The ultimate communities of San Francisco and Seattle are going head-to-head in a mixed gender game played by pro rules. I'm really excited to watch how this goes. I've kind of always been willing to throw out the idea of pro mixed ultimate. I wanted the MLU to go that route uh, back before they folded. So Nathan, give me your thoughts on how this is going to go. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to watch, especially given that we just get to see some players uh, play together that we're not used to seeing play together. I think that'll be interesting. You know, there are teams from, like players from Riot and Mixtape and Fury and Nightlock and Mischief, uh, you know, playing in this game. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to watch. Uh, you know, I just would encourage people, like, not to uh, overreact. Like, if it's kind of a sloppy game, it might be because these teams haven't really played together that much, you know? Because um, they haven't. So let, let's not, like, get on the bandwagon going one way or the other based on just one, a sample size of one. Um, I think it will be uh, fun to watch, and it should definitely be interesting. What do you think, Preston? It is going to be fun. Uh, some of the San Francisco superstars on the men's side are going to be out, uh, and I know on the women's side they're missing some of the typical Fury household names. So I think this is going to be a close game. I think it's really going to be enjoyable. Nathan, I am going to make you pick as to who you think you're going to win. Uh, I'm going Seattle all the way. I'm going to say uh, Seattle by three or more goals. Whoa. Okay, I'm gonna. Say, I was gonna say yeah. San Francisco. I wasn't even gonna ask for the margin, but I, I'm thinking San Francisco is gonna take this one. It's it's really gonna be interesting to watch, though. I'm super excited because, like I said, I've always been in favor of mixed pro ultimate. I want it to go really, really well. So if you were in that area, go <laughs> support this kind of thing because I think having showcase events like this and getting the really high level players to play in them could be super cool for the sport as kind of like an all-star break type thing so it's going to be fun feel free to go follow us on twitter we are at audl roundup leave a comment on the show about these segments that we tried out let us know what you like let us know what you want to try but differently and uh hit us up on twitter at our individual accounts nathan you are at semi pro ultimate right yes someday when ultimate is just super huge and all over espn People are going to be like, how did he snag that Twitter account so early? And then you'll have to change it to Pro Ultimate because we won't have the semi uh, moniker on there. I am at P-Stone, P-S-T-O-N-3. So give us a follow there. And until next week, we are signing off.